HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to another riveting episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and today we are going to be tackling the subject of urban cheesemaking. Crazy. Um, totally, totally crazy. Totally possible. Totally <laughs> happening before our very eyes. Um, so, you know, not too many generations ago, much of our food was produced directly in or around cities. Uh, but with the advent of different technologies, you know, railroad, refrigeration, then trucks, preservatives, etc., food production has been uh, sort of relegated to areas that are much farther away from urban centers. Um, however, there's a revolution that is happening all over the place, it seems. We've heard a lot about urban gardens and farms, backyard chickens and rooftop honey, but today we're here to talk about a different breed of urban food producer, the urban cheesemaker. And we've found two cheesemakers from two continents to talk to you about it today. Uh, The first segment of our show, we're going to be talking with Bill Oglethorpe, who makes cheese in London. And uh, the second uh, segment of our show, we're going to be talking with Elena Santagade, who makes cheese right here in Brooklyn, New York. 
Um, so, Bill, are you on the line with us? Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm here, yeah. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for being on the show. I know it's late. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your cheese making operation and where it's located, and uh, and maybe just I don't know, yeah, how you how you stumbled into making cheese in the center of London? Um, yeah, I mean Bermondsey, which is about ten minutes from Tower Bridge, um, and I worked with. Newfield Dairy for about 15 years and before that I was in Switzerland and in an agricultural college so I I learned about um, farming in Switzerland are you from are, are you from uh, England originally I was born in Zambia grew up there and then I went to Switzerland then so I was kind of British just because I was in a British colony I guess and then I had family in England so I came to England about 20 years ago. Wow. So what made you decide to go to agricultural college in Switzerland? Um, I was interested in farming and food, and uh, it was a, a Swiss friend in Zambia who was working with my father just offered me the opportunity. So he organized for me to go to school in Switzerland. And was your focus... Uh, so I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So I just took that opportunity to, you know, learn French and learn about farming. Wow. And was your focus uh, always dairy, or did you pursue different things at the college? Well, it was basically sort of Swiss farming, which is a small-scale farm. Most have 30 cows and about 120 acres of mixed production. You know, they have a little mount, bit of mountain pastures and then down in the valley they have some uh, crops and so it was yeah mixed small scale mixed farming so you really you learned about all the aspects of running a small farm yeah yeah wow yeah, quite and how did you find your way then from uh from switzerland in these very pastoral beautiful country places to london ah uh, well I guess um, circumstances, maybe visas and family, and and then I found a job at Neofjord Dairy, which sort of reconnected me to the countryside and the production of food. Um, I think that that's more or less the, the route. <laughs> <laughs> and when you first started working for Neil's Yard, were you working in the shop, or did you go around to the farms to source the cheeses? Uh, what was your what oh, was your no, position? Oh no, I was in the shop in Covent Garden, just retailing. Mm. And and then eventually gravitated towards the affinage and the um, uh, cheese-making side. So I went to visit farms and we looked at production problems. And uh, the dairy also sent me on a cheese-making course in France to a school that I knew of. And so I learned a lot more about cheese, cheese-making there. So And then came back and then I wanted to get more involved in the cheese-making and was going to work with Randolph on a farm. Then there were other opportunities to make cheese in London. So I took the opportunity to try and make cheese in London. Wow. And how did you, how did you start? It sounds like such... I, I know Neil's Yard Dairy, for our listeners who might not know, actually started off as a small dairy producer, actually. Randolph, I believe, um, you'll, right. you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but I know he made yogurts and some fresh cheeses. 
Um, uh, and so anyways, I find it interesting that then, you know, years down the road, uh, one of, uh, you know, one of his employees slash protégés would go on to make cheese in London. He had to be pretty happy about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting that I, the supplier that supplies the dairy in the beginning is the farm that's supplying me with milk now. So, and they have the same setup that they had. 20 years ago when they were supplying New South Dairy or New South Creamery, as it's known now. Wow. And, um, so they, I can get the milk straight from the milking parlor without it going through the plate cooler or into the tank and put the milk straight into churns. And that was set up years ago and they still have it. So, yeah, no, it's all the old, I was wondering. old network, I guess. If you could maybe talk a little bit more, um, just going into the logistics of, of making cheese in a city as opposed to a rural setting. Um, you just started started touching on it, but I'm sure there are some things that you might not have to deal with or or addis- additional logistics that just don't come up as much in a, in a rural environment. Uh, yeah, well, I try to find, well, this is something as close as possible, so I can the milk up warm and have the starter in and not have to handle it too much in terms of pumping and chilling and reheating. So I want to sort of approximate what I experienced in Switzerland and the Alps, in Etiva, where the milk was just milk and then put in the fat starter and then cheese was made without any handling. Uh, so I approximate that, really. So I, I pick I go there at 5 a.m. while they're milking, get 300 liters. The starter's in the churns. So during the journey of an hour and a half, the milk is ripening. Then it's in the vat. It's 30 degrees. So what's that, about 90 Fahrenheit? And then I just have to heat it up a little bit, put the rennet in, and then in half an hour I've got curds. and So the cheese is done more or less into molds for about 10 o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, that's, that's more or less the, the process I've come up with. Wow. So that's, well, those are, uh, that, that's dedication and long hours. Yeah. Um, what time do you get started in the morning to drive out to the dairy? Oh, um, about 4.30 I'm driving out there. Wow. And then I, sh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just so I can... Um, get the milk warm and while they're milking and also miss the traffic so I can I don't get stuck in traffic on the way in <laughs> that's true it's a different yeah. kind of commuter's worry when you have a, a, a truck full of milk ripening yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> then just <laughs> just <laughs> that's different than just being worried about getting to work on time yeah wow um so can you tell us a little bit more about this farm that you work with because they it's an integral part of your business um what uh kind of cows do they have and uh, what other things do they do um, with uh, their well, milk? It's an organic farm. It's um, it's uh, they they have about two hundred and fifty cows, and they they've been breeding in um, Montbéliard cows that are from the east of France that make Comté, and uh, the they also have some Swedish Brown, and then the black and white uh, Frisian Holstein. So. They've been trying to make the herd a little bit more hardy, reduce production, but also reduce, um, you know, 
problems you get with high production like lameness and mastitis and also um, they live they don't live so long I guess with high production so they're trying to make them a little bit more hardy and, and long long lived and better quality and all that L- low maintenance I guess <laughs> so <laughs> they um they graze them on grass in the summer you know totally out on the grass in, in the sort of the rotational you know rational grazing like I guess, the, what do they call it in the States? It's yeah, rotational grazing. Yeah, I'm the same. Rotational grazing, yeah. Sort of optimize the growth of the grass and reduce the need for winter feed and stuff like that. I mean, they, no, they don't totally do it the way I would I would do it myself, but they, they seem to orientate production more towards the winter. They, you know, they peak production and use winter feed more than I would like to do. But I, I just, I'd like pick up them up just in the summer while they're on grass. But do you, you make cheese year-round? Um, I might be, just because of financial pressures. But if I've got the choice, then I just make it in the summer. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about your facility? I know you said you're located in Bermondsey, um, but it's a pretty unique set up. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about yeah, that. Well, I've just recently moved, so I've just built a new space. So in May, I moved to this new space. Um, it's a, a railway arch, and it's about 2,000 square feet in total, so it's quite a big space. And the room, the cheese-making room is about 300 square feet, and the equipment I use is from the Alps, so it's, I've got a copper vat, and I use gas fire to heat it up, and I have a, a, a press from the Alps as well, and the mold, and um, so it's, I chose that system because of the simplicity, and the, the low investment that you need to start with, but I'd like to make other cheeses like um, uh, fresh lactic and uh, sort of medium, you know, camembert, revolution type cheeses mm. once I, because now I have the space to do that, whereas before I moved, I, I was squeezed in by the, um, my, the, my, uh, the people I shared the arch with who were brewing beer, and he's <laughs> success, but we couldn't move anymore for beer. <laughs> That seems like a place where I would like to be stuck yeah. in a railway arch <laughs> full of cheese and beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just have an apartment there. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of cheeses do you currently make? Uh, there's two types. So the, I call them Bermondsey hard-pressed cheese. The f- one is like a Gruyere. It's cooked and pressed and salted. And then the other one's is Bermondsey fryer cheese, which is a cheese from Venice that's a bit like halloumi. But you can make, you make it like a hard cheese. I guess it's at the stage where you'd make mozzarella. So you have lots of rennet and stirring and cutting. But instead of pressing it, I just let it drain in square molds and have um, add very little salt, then chill it. And then it's, you fry it in slabs, basically, like a lumi. And uh, have it with... I, it's really good with garlic leaves or pepper or I know there's various and in burgers I guess it would work so that that was in order to get a cheese that I could make and sell within a couple of days and then the hard pressed I could make at the same time 
but keep for six to eight months. Right. And, and that, and that um, the, the fryer cheese, I had the pleasure of trying when I was in London in June, and I, could, I think I could eat like easily a half pound of that in a sitting. <laughs> it is so good. Yeah, all right, that's the idea, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's now, easy, easy to... Easy, easy right. to love. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. we only unfortunately have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to talk a little bit about where people can find you and, um, and your toasted cheese sandwiches um, and, other, and other things that you do because you've garnered quite a bit of acclaim for your, for your cheese. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, so it's multi street group, I guess. It's, that's the group of traders I'm with near um, Tower Bridge. Uh, so um, I'm in Bermondsey. I guess you could look on my website, the Cup of Casing website, for the address. Oh yeah, what, can you can you? Uh, what is your website for everyone who's listening? So if they want to uh, log on, www.cupacasing.com. And Cupacasing is tell me if I'm wrong. K a p p a c a s e i n. dot com. That's right. Okay. Good. Yeah. Oh, those pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, and so uh, what... And then I'm also at... Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm at uh, the Real Food Market um, next to the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank. So I'm there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday now. Great. Uh, so you're there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then on Maltby Street, when does that market take place? Friday and Saturday. Friday and Saturday. Oh. Great. And if it's okay with you, uh, we'll, we'll put yep. all of this information on our, our blog as well. So if people are looking for yep. it, they'll have a second source to find a link. Okay, yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, well, um, sadly, sadly, we've run out of time, but um, I, I hope uh, that you'll come back on the show at some point, and I hope that I find myself in London again soon so I can eat some more of that fryer cheese. I'm, I'm getting a craving oh, just right, talking yeah. about it. <laughs> Okay, good, yeah. Um, I'll have some new cheeses, hopefully, by then. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thanks again for, for being on the show, and uh, stick with us. We'll be back with Elena Santagade, Making Cheese in Brooklyn. Morning, sir. Morning. Um... I was uh, sitting in the public library in Sermon Street just now, uh, skimming through Rogue Herries by uh, Horace Walpole, when I um, suddenly came over all peckish. Peckish, eh? Isuriant. Eh? Yabber all only like. Ah, hungry. In a nutshell. So I thought to myself, a little fermented curd will do the trick. So I curtailed my wall-poling activities, sallied forth and infiltrated your place of purveyance to negotiate the bending of some cheesy comestibles. Come again? I want to buy some cheese! Ah! I thought you were complaining about the music. Oh, heaven forbid, I'm one who delights in all manifestations of the Terpsichorean news. Sorry? I like a nice dance, you forced to. Anyway, who said that? Now, my good man, some cheese, please. Yes, certainly, sir. What would you like? Well, uh, how about a little Red Leicester? I'm afraid we're fresh out of Red Leicester, sir. Never mind. How are you on uh, Tilsit? Never at the end of the week, sir. Always get it fresh first thing on Monday. Tish, tish. No matter. Um, well, four ounces of kefili, then, if you please, stout yeoman. 
Ah, well, it's been on order for two weeks. I was expecting it this morning. Yes, it's not my day, is it? Ah, uh, Belpaise? Sorry. Red Windsor? I'm normally so, yes. But today the van broke down. Ah. Uh, Stilton? Sorry. Gruyere, Emmental? No. Any Norwegian Jarlsberger? No. Liptar? No. Lancashire? No. White Stilton? No. Danish Blue? No. Double Gloucester? No. Cheshire? <laughs> no. Any Dorset Blue Vinny? No. <laughs> and we are back <laughs> on Cutting the Curd. After the funniest cheese skit of all time. <laughs> um, be assured, at Neil's Yard Dairy, you will find all of those cheeses that they were talking about and more. And probably you can find all those cheeses in, in our next guest's apartment. <laughs> we are here with uh, Elena Santagade, who is an urban cheesemaker in Brooklyn. Uh, so thanks for coming out to Roberta's to be on the show. Yeah, happy, happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I guess before we get into your, your cheese making, tell us about what, what's your you know, real job in quotation marks. And, and yeah, so I, I don't do cheese making commercially um, or for my quote unquote profession. But um, during the day, I work at a sustainable transportation advocacy organization um, where we advocate for bicycling, walking and public transit in New York City. Transportation cool. Alternatives. Yes, that is the name yes. of the organization. Such a great organization. And I feel such like, you know, kinship because my logo is a bike yes. for yeah. my cheese shop. And I feel like we need to, we were talking about this before the break. We need to get some biking and cheese activities happening. Absolutely. In, in New York. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Elena, how did you end up becoming fascinated by cheese? And when did you make the leap from just being fascinated by it to actually trying to make it? Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start about with when I sort of became very serious about, about cheese and, um, cause I've always loved it. My family's from Wisconsin and I'm, Oh, where, whereabouts? Um, Northern Wisconsin, a small town called Three Lakes. Oh. Grandparents in Stevens Point. Oh yeah. But, um, yeah, I was only ever up real far North once. Yeah. It's actually hard to get really fantastic cheese that far North unfortunately hmm. but um so cheese all lifelong cheese but um it was really a few years ago when I worked in publishing actually that I was tasting cheese and getting more excited about cheese and actually set up a small group in my office a little cheese club so that I could taste many cheeses a week without spending all of my paycheck <laughs> <laughs> and um the cheese club really kind of kicked things off um for me because I got to taste so many cheeses and and think about it in a little more of an organized way you know it was it was very relaxed and um uh informal but it was still a good opportunity to go around town and talk with a lot of cheesemongers all over New York um, which I started doing more and more over the years. And then it really was last year that I started getting much more interested in in cheese and the process behind this very simple but dynamic product that I loved so much. Um, and so, yeah, really just about a year ago was when I started becoming interested in making cheese. And what, cool. was, your, what was your first batch of cheese? And how did yeah. you go about learning for that first batch? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> as opposed to Bill, who was properly trained. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'd actually been making ricotta at home. I think a lot of people have experienced 
with making ricotta and it's it's really satisfying i've been making that for a few years um so that technically i guess would be my first cheese but um about a year ago i tried to make some fresh goat cheese i think it was goat and of course knowing nothing i i got some sort of very simple instructions somewhere i'm not even sure (laughs) where but i skipped over a few key steps and basically just ripened some milk a lot (laughs) and you know it was i always sort of joke about how i'm self-taught and i've never um had any official training i've I've always had other careers going on i live in new york city and so um I I really have learned cheese making by failure, I think, and that has led me towards success, which is actually, I think, giving me a good foundation for knowing what I'm doing now. You know, I think every cheesemaker learns by failure, no matter how much training you've had. It's it's really hard to make good cheese. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What about your setup? What's your what's your kitchen like and where do you get your equipment? Yeah, I was my che- my cheese make room is uh <laughs> about 100 square feet. Um yeah, I, I live in a small apartment in Brooklyn and so I make cheese in my kitchen. And luckily it's a it's a fairly large kitchen for New York City standards. Um but basically I I have a lot of equipment that's stowed away up on high shelves and in cupboards that all kind of magically appears when I'm going to make cheese that I <laughs> lay out um, and sanitize and um, and it, the whole place kind of transforms into this little miniature cheese making room and um, and when my cheese is uh, draining or drying I, I carry it into the other room <laughs> uh, so that I can cook in the kitchen without sort of screwing things up. Wow. And so what, um, you know, practical tips for home cheesemakers, what are like, you know, in terms of finding your equipment and then just in terms of like keeping things, you know, clean and, and just, you know, doing a good job, what would your like top five be? Yeah, I think that, you know, keeping things clean is probably the biggest challenge for maybe all cheesemakers, but especially home cheesemakers when you're also cooking and, you know, you've got a bowl of fruit sitting out and all kinds of stuff happening, especially if you live in a small space. So, you know, for me, I just try to not do anything else while I'm making cheese, Um, try to kind of clear the area of anything food related. Um, And, you know, in terms of a setup, I... I'm still tinkering with how best to go about it. I have an extra little, like a dorm fridge, um, in which I age my like hard wheels of cheese, and I have a whole sort of crazy setup in there with bowls of water and humidity, you know, <laughs> tracker and um, rags that are dispersing the humidity throughout the fridge and it's kind of a constant battle because the nature of a refrigerator is to dry dry everything out out. (laughs) yeah (laughs) so I have that and then I have a small wine cooler actually that I use for fresh cheeses because it's not very Mm. large so I can um, kind of rotate cheeses in and out of there easily and so what kind of cheeses have you made? It sounds yeah. like this is a pretty it's extensive pretty array. <laughs> well, I I decided to make the, that I would make the cheeses that I really love to eat, um, which is probably a good idea for any kind of work work or hobby in food um, or beverage, I suppose. So I'm, I've been making goudas and cheddars mostly um, with goat milk and cow milk. I think my favorite cheese is like an aged goat milk cheddar type. So I've been working on that a bit. Um, and then I'm working on one manchego, 
which is um, really fun. And, and I get to paint it three times a week with olive oil, which I like to do. Um, <laughs> and then I make a lot of little fresh lactic cheeses. And how much will you make in a go? How big is like yeah. a typical batch for you? Um, not big at all. Um, oh, I forgot to say, I also make mozzarella. Oh, cool. Um, cool. And that's, that's something that I've been doing the whole way through. Um, and I teach little mini mozzarella making classes in my apartment as well. Cool. Oh, and if people want to find fun. out about that, how can they, how can they find out? They can find out on my blog, which is wannabemonger.com. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I'm going to come. I have never made mozzarella successfully. Yeah, it's really, it's, you know, there are different ways to do it, more complicated ways. But for a quick mozzarella that'll satisfy your craving, I can teach you how, which is fun. Cool. Um, Yeah, but I don't make things in big batches, that's for sure. I have a a four-gallon pot, big, you know, stew pot kind of thing that I hoist off of the top of a bookshelf when I make my cheese, um, and that's what I use. And in the beginning, actually, I didn't have that pot, and I didn't even really know that that existed in a place where I could find it. So I did this crazy thing where I would try to make cheese in like three different pots and then <laughs> put it all together, really complicated things. But now it seems really easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, is there a, a New York City cheese making community? You know, I think about like the New York City Homebrewers Guild and stuff yeah. like that. Is there um, a fellowship of cheesemakers in New York? You know, it's a really good question. I found a couple of people online. I know there's this, um, there's one guy who I haven't actually contacted, but he has a really fantastic blog that I'm blanking on the name of, but maybe we can add it to the roundup later on. Yeah. Um, But he uh, was making cheese in his kind of brownstone basement that looked pretty incredible and I think is now opening a a dairy upstate or something like that. Wow. But, um, you know, I haven't actually reached out too much. It's funny, like the whole process of cheese making in one sense is so solitary and um, meditative, which I think is part of why I like doing it, especially outside of a kind of very social job. Um, But then the more that I do it and talk to people about it, the more people get excited about it and want to experience it with me somehow. And um, people really come on board. So right now I've just sort of been shocked at the community of people that I've met through doing it who are just interested in it. And Mm -hmm. I really have yet to connect fully with people who are also making cheese at home. So if you're out there, email yeah. me yeah <laughs> want to be monger.com start a club yeah <laughs> that would be fantastic get together everybody brings their wheels of cheese you yeah. can taste them and troubleshoot and absolutely <laughs> cool. i would love it yeah um now do you have uh further plans for like for your cheese making career do you feel like you would eventually maybe want to have some sort of a cheese business or do you think that home cheese making is really is it and it's very satisfying and that's enough Well, for now, I'm just kind of seeing where the momentum goes. Um, I think part of why it's so nice is that it's this balance from the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of defend that feeling a little bit and and don't want to give in too much to letting it be the main main event. Um, But also, for me at least, part of the reason why I make cheese is because I want to understand more of what is contributing to the cheeses that I love to eat and to buy so much. I mean, I don't think, you know, technically I could make a cheese that was going to rival some incredible farmstead um, wheel that was made with fresh milk and, you know, sort of 
there are some barriers to entry there in the urban cheese making that I haven't figured out yet. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but I do really like being able to understand why certain cheeses taste the way they do or have the texture that they do. And, um, and all of that sort of contributes to, to my angle on this whole thing. And so I'm not quite sure where it'll go yet, but it's really fun so far. And can you give our listeners any pointers on where to get um, different supplies, such as cultures or books that are helpful? Um, yeah. Because I feel like that's, you know, they can be sort of difficult to, to suss out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, New England Cheese Making Supply, um, that's the website where I order most of my ingredients and my um, equipment. I actually bought my first, like, set of molds and starters and strainers and like you know all my my first sort of starter set in a very small town in vermont at this little dairy supply shop called bob white systems which i think we we had you've had on the area yeah which i thought was so wild because i stumbled upon them while visiting friends in the area and um i got great advice from a cheesemaker there um so that was really helpful and i always if if anybody you know, books are great and trying it out is great. Um, and that's really mostly what I've done. But of course, the opportunities you have to actually talk to a cheesemaker or somebody who's at least tried it are, are the biggest helpers. Yeah. Well, we've only got a couple minutes left. These shows always go by too fast. Yeah. But if you had to say what's the best cheese you've made and what's the worst cheese yeah. you've made? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, I think the the best, maybe I'll say two different cheeses for the best because I did different things with them. But for the 4th of July, I had a bunch of barbecues to go to. And I decided that it would be more cost-effective and fun to make a bunch of little fresh lactic cheeses. And I tried to, um, to make them 4th of July themed. <laughs> so I think I powdered one with paprika and one with cracked pepper and... Uh, maybe one with time to try and do some sort of red, white, and blue that, you know, I don't even know. And then I had just a plain one. Um, and those actually turned out really great. They were cow's milk and they were, they just had a nice, um, surprising, tangy taste. And they were really fun to share with people, of course, which is the best thing about cheese, really. Um, and then the other great one that I make, I make a fresh goat cheese and then I make, um, chocolate truffles using the goat cheese which is a nice way to share that with people so that's really fun and then the worst cheese (laughs) I think I've made was definitely that first one where I was just (laughs) clueless absolutely naive clueless try just trying to make some semblance of cheese which is a goat goat milk cheese that didn't work out ripened goat milk ripened goat milk (laughs) not yogurt not cheese yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh man well so when is your next uh workshop well may i try to do uh monthly mozzarella making classes and the next the september class is actually full um so thanks the october class will be probably in the middle of the month um but i always announce the dates on wannabemonger.com so people can check cool. that out. And I also sometimes host little unofficial beer and cheese tasting parties because I think it's really fun for people to talk about the tastes that they experience without using the regular sort of official lingo. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your cheese making experiences yeah. with us. And all of our listeners should check out wannabemonger.com. 
and definitely check out a workshop too. You can learn to make cheese right in your very own apartment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. And then bike at home. Yeah. Bike at home. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. And uh, so we will be back next Monday You're with another episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. And Saxony. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. Broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is a message from Fork and Anchor. Aaron Fitzpatrick, the host of our wine program, Unfiltered, is looking for help on Kickstarter to open Fork and Anchor, a general store inspired by two food-loving ladies with an equal affection for urban life, the sea, and the agricultural paradise of Long Island's North Fork. The store is situated in a growing community of farmers and winemakers and will become a meeting place offering prepared foods, a variety of sun-dries, and a selection of homespun products, many of which will have their origins in New York State. Your backing will help them fulfill their dream of fostering relationships with the community and making the local food system accessible on a broader scale. Search kickstarter.com for Fork and Anchor and donate today.